Good afternoon and welcome to The Daily with Syl Stein on Anchor FM. And uh, like I said, I, I do present the Coffee Chronicles. An announcement that I have to make first and foremost is I'm happy to report that I have trademarked the Coffee Chronicles because it all begins with coffee. So I will be branding out that logo soon. I'm very, very grateful that I, I was able to do that. And uh, it was uh, not easy to keep that news, but I'm really, really grateful. That's the first part of the news. I'm very grateful for that. I, I appreciate all the support, but I want to send a big shout out to my husband because he's been my biggest supporter throughout everything. And my children, of course, my, my daughter, Connie, my sons, Paul and Michael. And of course, without God, there nothing would be possible in our family and friends close friends and family and all of you that tune in to the show. But um, so I will be branding out the Coffee Chronicles because it all begins with coffee and I will be having more of that stuff, uh, you know, and I'll be doing giveaways of that. Um, But right now, I'm just really, really happy that we have been able to do that. And I couldn't have done it without the support of my wonderful husband and my family, my children, and of course, God, first and foremost, without him, nothing is possible. So we'll be right back to start off the uh, second part of Escott Fitzgerald, uh, The Great Gatsby. As I started reading a little bit about it yesterday, I'll go over uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, biography with you guys. And then I'll begin on reading some of the chapters for today. It's not a long show. It's just the second part of The Daily Whistle Stein on Anchor FM. And I I, uh, wanted to do an author spotlight on F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I want to go ahead and read more of this book to you guys. Because The Great Gatsby has been a very big part of my life. Um, I read it a lot in high school, as I said. And I've always loved that book, along with To Kill a Mockingbird. There's been several books that stand out in time, of course. Um, and uh, those books really changed me in, in the literary world, and I wanted to share that. So we'll be right back, and thank you for joining me again. Happy Tuesday. Hope you guys are doing well, and as I said, I do present the Coffee Chronicles. I was trying to do this show earlier, but it's it's a little hard, especially when children, my kids are in school and they're doing their classwork to find a space to do it early in the morning. Aside from my Instagram, I can't really record in a room where there's not background noise. So my apologies on that. But we're working it out. Right now I'm just doing my regular recording. I didn't use my AKG uh, microphone. It's been a a bit of an adjustment to tune out the voice, get it all settled up. So once I do that, we'll be back with the microphone that I used yesterday. But I hope you can still hear me clearly. And we'll be right back with part two of the Daily Daily Whistle Sound on Anchor FM. uh, Author Spotlight, F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Thank you.
Good afternoon, happy Tuesday, and welcome to The Daily with Silstein on Anchor FM. As I said, I, I talked a lot about F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's an author spotlight, and I'm doing part two because I wanted to read more of The Great Gatsby to you. Uh, the first part, of, as I said, F. Scott Fitzgerald was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1896. He attended Princeton University joined the United States Army during World War I and published his first novel, This Side of Paradise, in 1920. That same year, he married Zelda Zare, and for the next decade, the couple lived in New York, uh, and it says Paris and on the Riviera. Fitzgerald's novels include The Beautiful and, Di- the Beautiful and Damned, The Great Gatsby, and Tender is the Night. He died at the age of 44 while working on The Last Tycoon. Fitzgerald's fiction has secured his reputation as one of the most important American writers of the 20th century. And he is. He's one of my favorites. And he also coined the term the Jazz Age. F. Scott Fitzgerald's third book sounds um, stands on the supreme achievement of his career. First published in 1925, This quintessential novel of the jazz age has been acclaimed by generations of readers. So yesterday I started reading um, and I want to read a little more because he had just met uh, Jay Gatsby. Let's see. Okay, I think I read where he said he's Gatsby. And then it's uh, as, as I said before, it sounds like F. Scott Fitzgerald was a big fan of adverbs. Um, if you notice when I'm reading, you'll notice a lot of them as I read. Uh, so it left off. I left off on page 48. For a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. So that's the term he uses a lot when he speaks to Nick. You'll notice that old sport being said a lot. Then he smiled understandingly. See that? Understandingly. Much more than than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey. Precisely... At that mo- at that point, it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over 30, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Sometimes before he introduced himself, I got a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby says, identified himself, a butler hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow, uh, sorry, a small bow that included each of us in turn. 
If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me, I will rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure her of my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in this middle, in his middle years. Who is he, I demanded. Do you know? He's just a man named Gatsby. Where is he from? I mean, and what does he do? Now that you started on the subject, she answered with a wan smile. Well, he told me he once was an Oxford man. A a dim background started to take shape behind him, but at her next remark, it faded away. However, I don't believe it. Why not? I don't know, she insisted. I just don't think he... He went there. Something in her tone reminded me of the other girls. I think he killed a man and had the effect of stimulating and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity. I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the Lower East Side of New York. That was comprehensible. Best young man, sorry, but young men didn't, at least in my provisional experience, I believe they didn't drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a place on Long Island sound. Any, anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urban and we're back to the daily with Silstein on Anchor FM and this is part two of my reading of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald author spotlight on the show for the daily with Silstein on Anchor FM thank you for joining me and I'm gonna start off where she says Where Jordan says, Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urban distaste for the concrete. And I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. There was the boom of a bass drum and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried, at the request of Mr. Gatsby, we're going to play you, play for you, Mr. Vladimir Totostov's latest work, which attracted so, so much attention at Carnegie Hall last May. If you read the papers, you know there was, it was a big sensation. He smiled with joyful condescension and added, some sensation. Whereupon everybody laughed. The piece is known, he concluded lustily, as Vladimir Tolstov's Jazz History of the World. The nature of Mr. Tolstov's composition eluded me, because just as it, as it began, my eyes fell on Gatsby, standing alone on their marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. His tan skin was drawn attractively tight on his face, and his short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day. 
I could see nothing sinister about him. I wonder if the fact that he was not drinking helped to set him off from his guests, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased. When the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their heads on men's shoulders in a puppish, puppyish, convivial way. Girls were swooning, swooning, swooning backward playfully into men's arms even into groups, knowing that someone would arrest their falls. But no one swooned backward on Gatsby, and no French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder, and no singing quartets were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired. I beg your pardon, but Miss... Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me, she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madame. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment and followed the butler toward the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress, all her dresses, like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean, crisp mornings. I was alone, and it was almost two. For some time, confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room, which overhung the terrace, eluding Jordan's undergraduate, who was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls, and who implored me to join him. I went inside. So, if you, as I'm reading this, just I wanted to stop for a moment. Look at all the description that you see. He, uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was so good about writing and, and giving you like the play-by-play of what's going on in the interactions and Gatsby and, and Jordan's movements and the description of how Gatsby looks and how he is. And, you know, it's so descriptive. I love it. And then we go to the large room was full of people. One of the girls in yellow was playing the piano and beside her stood a tall, red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in song. She had drank a quantity of champagne and during the course of her song, she had decided ineptly that everything was very, very sad. She was not only singing, she was weeping too. Whenever there was a pause in the song, she filled it with gasping, broken sobs and then took up the lyric again in a quavering soprano. The tears coursed down her cheeks, not freely, however, for when they came into contact with her heavily beaded eyelashes, they assumed an inky color and pursued the rest Okay, hold on. of their way in slow back rivulets. A humorous suggestion was made that she sing the notes on her face, whereupon she threw up her hands, sank into a chair, and went off into a deep, vinous sleep. She had a fight with a man who says he's her husband, explained a girl at my elbow. I looked around. Most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands. Even Jordan's party, the quartet from East Egg, were rent asunder by dissension. One of the men was talking with curious intensity to a young actress and his wife, after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and a different way, broke down entirely and resorted to flank attacks at 
interval, she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, You promised into his ear. Their reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. The wives were sympathizing with each other in slightly raised voices. Whenever he sees I'm having a good time, he wants to go home. Never heard anything so selfish in my life. We're always the first ones to leave. So are we. Well, we're almost the last tonight, said one of the men sheepishly. The orchestra left half an hour ago. In spite of the wife's agreement that such malevolence was beyond credibility, the dispute ended in a short struggle, and both wives were lifted kicking into the night. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the the door of the library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby, Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were you... How long were we in there? Why, about an hour. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractly, but I swore I wouldn't tell it. And here I am tantalizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me, phone book, under the name of Miss Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I had stayed so late, I joined the the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I hunted for him early in the evening and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it. He enjoyed enjoyed me eagerly. Don't give it another thought, old sport. The familiar expression held no more familiarity familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. And don't forget, we're going up the hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Then the butler behind his shoulder. Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir. All right, in a minute, tell them I'll be right there. Good night, good night. Good night, he smiled, and suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having been among the last to go as if he had desired it all the time. Good night, old sport. Good night. But as I walked down the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door, a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up, but violently shorn of wheel, rested a new coupe which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. The sharp jut jut of a wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs however as they left their cars blocking the road a harsh discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time and added to the already violent confusion of the scene a man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of the road looking from the car to the tire and from the tire to the observed 
in a pleasant, puzzled way. See, he explained, I went in the ditch. The fact was infinitely astonishing to him, and I recognized him. And recognized first the unusual quality of wonder, and then the man. It was the late patron of Gatsby's library. How did it happen? He shrugged his shoulder. I know nothing whatever about mechanics, he said decisively. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me, said the old eyes, said old eyes, washing his hands of the whole matter. I know very little about driving, next to nothing. It happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you oughtn't to try driving at night. But I wasn't even trying, he explained indignantly. I wasn't even trying. An odd hush fell upon the bystanders. Do you want do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky it was just a wheel, a bad driver, and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I won't I wasn't driving. There's another man in the car. The shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained ah at the door of the coupe swung slowly open. The crowd was now a crowd stepped back involuntarily. When the door had opened wide, there was a ghostly pause. Then, very gradually, part by part, a pale, dangling individual stepped out of the wreck, pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain dancing shoe. Blinded, sorry, blinded by the glare of the headlights and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns, the apparition stood swamp, swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster. What's the matter? He inquired calmly. Do we run out of gas? Look. Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment and then looked upward as though he suspected it had dropped from the sky. It came off, someone explained. He nodded at first. I didn't notice we'd stop. A pause, then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders, he remarked in a determined voice, Wonder if it'll tell me where there's a gas line station. At least a dozen men, some of them little better off than he was, explained to him that the wheel and car were no longer joined by any physical bond. Back out, he suggested after a moment. Put her, put her in reverse. But where's, but the wheel's off, he hesitated. No harm in trying, he said. The Carter walling horns had reached the crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn toward home. I glanced back once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still glowing garden. The sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows and the great doors, endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch, his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. Reading over what I have written so far, I see I have given the impression that the events of three nights several weeks apart were all that absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer and until much later, they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. And we'll be right back with more.
And welcome back to the Daily with Silstein on Anchor FM. And I'm going to wrap it up on this chapter, on this next section. And I do apologize. It's been very difficult to try to record my podcast. There's outside noise. There's my kids all have, they, they're still in school. They're, they have stuff they're doing. And it's hard for me to find a room where background noise does not come to it. So again, my deepest apologies. So here we're going to go to the page 74. And this is where um, one October day in 1917, said Jordan Baker that afternoon, sitting up very straight on a straight chair in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel. I was walking along from one place to another, half on the sidewalks and half on the lawns. I was happier on the lawns because I had on shoes from England with rubber knobs on the soles that bit into the soft ground. I had on a new plaid skirt also that blew a little wind, blew a little in the wind. And whenever this happened, the red, white, and blue banners in front of all the houses stretched out stiff and said, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta in a disapproving way. The largest of the banners and the largest of the lawns belonged to Daisy Faye's house. She was just 18, two years older than me, and by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville. She dressed in white and had a little white roadster, and all day long the telephone rang in her house, and excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night, anyways, for an hour. When I came opposite her house that morning, her white roadster was beside the curb and she was sitting in it with a lieutenant I had never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other that she didn't see me until I was five feet away. Hello, Jordan, she called unexpectedly. Please come here. I was flattered that she wanted to speak to me because of all the elder girls, I admired her most. She asked me if I was going to the Red Cross and make bandages. I was. Well, then, would I tell them that she couldn't come that day? The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime. And because it seemed romantic to me, I have remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gatsby, and I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years Even after I had met him on Long Island, I didn't realize it was the same man. That was 1917. By the next year, I had a few bows myself, and I began to play in tournaments, so I didn't see Daisy very often. She went with a slight older crowd. When she went with anyone at all, wild rumors were circulating about her, how her mother had found her, packing her bag one winter night to go to New York and say goodbye to a soldier who was going overseas. She was effectively prevented, but she wasn't on speaking terms with her family for several weeks. After that, she didn't play around with the soldiers anymore, but only with a few flat-footed, short-sighted young men in town who couldn't get into the army at all. By the next autumn, she was Gay again, gay as ever. She had a debut after the armistice 
and in February, she was presumably engaged to a man from New Orleans. In June, she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago with more pomp and circumstance than Louisville ever knew before. He came down with a hundred people in four private cars and hired a whole floor of the Silback Hotel. And the day before the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, the wedding, he gave her a string of pearls valued at $350,000. I was a bridesmaid. I came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner and found her lying on her bed as lovely as the June night in her flower dress and as drunk as a monkey. She had a bottle of Sautern in her one hand and a letter in the other. Congratulate me, she muttered. Never had a drink before, but oh, how I do enjoy it. What's the matter, Daisy? I was scared, I can tell you. I'd never seen a girl like that before. Here, dears. She groped around in a waste basket she had with her on her on the bed and pulled out the string of pearls. Take them downstairs and give them back to whoever they belong to. Tell them all Daisy's changed her mind. Say Daisy's changed her mind. She began to cry. She cried and cried. I rushed out and found her mother's maid, and we locked the door and got her into a cold bath. She wouldn't let go of the letter. She took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up into a wet ball and only let me leave it in the soap dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow. But she didn't say another word. We gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead and hooked her back into her dress. Half an hour later, when we walked out of the room, the pearls were around her neck and the incident was over. Next day at five o'clock, she married Tom Buchanan without so much as a shiver and started off on a three-month trip to South to the South Seas. I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back and I thought, I never seen a girl so mad about her husband. If he left the room for a minute, she looked around uneasily and said, where's Tom gone? And where the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door. She used to sit on the sand with his head in her lap by the hour, rubbing her fingers over his eyes and looking at him with unfathomable delight. It was touching to see them together. It made you laugh in a hushed, fascinated way. That was in August. A week after I left Santa Barbara, Tom ran into a woman on the Ventura Road one night and ripped a front wheel off his car. The girl who was with him got into the papers too because her arm was broken. She was one of the chambermaids in the Santa Barbara Hotel. The next April, Daisy had her little girl and they went to France for a year. I saw them one spring in Cannes and later in Deauville. Is everything good, friend? Fine. Sorry, my daughter's going over there. Sorry. Sorry about that. And they came back to Chicago to settle down. Daisy was popular in Chicago. Can you close the door, Connie? Sorry. Sorry, guys. Daisy was popular in Chicago, as you know. They moved with a fast crowd, all of them young and rich and wild. But she came out with an absolutely perfect reputation, perhaps because she doesn't drink. 
It's a great advantage not to drink among hard-drinking people. You can hold your tongue, and moreover, you can time any little irregularity of your own so that everybody else is so blind that they don't see or care. Perhaps Daisy never went in for um, a more at all, and yet there's something in the voice of in that voice of hers. Well, about six weeks ago, she heard the name Gatsby for the first time in years. It was when I asked you, do you remember you knew Gatsby in West Egg? After you had gone home, she came into my room and woke me up and said, what Gatsby? And when I described him, I was half asleep. She said in the strangest voice that it must be the man she used to know. It wasn't until then that I connected this Gatsby with the officer in her white car. Whoa, the drama um, unfolds. When Jordan Baker had finished telling all this, we had left the plaza for half an hour and were driving in a Victoria through Central Central Park. The sun had gone down behind the tall apartments of the movie stars in the West 50s and the clear voices of children already gathered like crickets on the grass rose through the hot twilight. I'm the Sheikh of Araby. Your love belongs to me at night when you're asleep. Into your rent, into your tent, sorry. Into your rent, into your tent I'll creep. It was a strange coincidence, I said, but it wasn't a coincidence at all. Why not? Gatsby bought that house so that Daisy would be just across the bay. So there's where I'm going to leave it. So obviously there's a past with Gatsby and Daisy. And for those of you that have already read the great Gatsby, you know where this goes and where it leads to. But I am so glad I got to share my love of Jake uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. And this has been the wrap-up for The Daily with Solstein on Anchor FM. I hope you listen to both parts of the show. And I will try to do a third so that there's an interaction between Jake Gatsby and Daisy. And I might do that tomorrow morning. Hopefully I'll have some time. Anyway, I'm about to do uh, work on some other stuff for, uh, that I have to get done and do a workout. So there's a lot of stuff I still have to do. But I'm glad that I was able to, that you all were able to join me on the Daily Whistle Stand on Anchor FM presents. And I do present the Coffee Chronicles. And as I said in the beginning, I have a trademark for the Coffee Chronicles because it all begins with coffee. I'm so happy about that. I got the news yesterday. I, uh, I applied for it in late July and I got the news yesterday. It's been approved. So I'm really, really thrilled. So is my husband. And I'll keep you more posted on more things to come. But I do appreciate you checking out the Daily Whistle Stein through Anchor FM. Have a great afternoon. And I'll try to bring you another show tomorrow. And this time, including the Coffee Chronicles, where we'll talk about books and coffee and our book, The Great Gatsby, by the awesome, amazing, and talented F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I know his birthday's coming up, or did come up. So it's a, it's a perfect time to talk about it. Have a great one, and I hope you all have a blessed one. Because as I always say, the Coffee Chronicles, because it all begins with coffee. And thank you for joining me on The Daily with Sil Stein here on Anchor FM. Have a great and happy Tuesday.